Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host Aaron Miller is with me as always. This is our news roundup episode for the week in which we talk about three or four of the week's major news items uh, for about five to ten minutes each. Just do a deeper dive on some of the stuff that's been in the news this week. Uh, since earnings season is kicking off, we'll talk a little bit about earnings. We're going to focus on Netflix, uh, Microsoft, Qualcomm, some other companies also reported earnings this week. But we're just going to talk about Netflix earnings here uh, then we'll talk about Lyft's announcement on Friday that they are developing their own self-driving system uh, for cars and what that really means. Thirdly, we'll talk about the rebirth uh, of Google Glass uh, with a slightly different focus now. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the abuse and harassment problem on Twitter and a couple of things that were in the news about that this week. So we'll kick things off with Netflix earnings. Uh, this is one of those funny quarters where it was a great reminder of the way that companies talk about their own earnings. If there's uh, a bad quarter, then they will give you every possible explanation for it. And if there's a good quarter, they act like, well, of course, it was a good quarter. We're just a great company and all the rest of it. And so kind of saw that a little bit with Netflix over the last couple of quarters where they pushed their House of Cards launch for the year back from Q1 to Q2. And House of Cards, you know, and, and I've heard from several people, really one show drives all this, but House of Cards and a couple of other shows tend to drive massively more signups in Q1 than in Q2. So Q1's the high point for the year, Q2 is traditionally the low point for the year. So when they did this in Q1, they sort of said this right up front in their shareholder letter, look, we pushed House of Cards back, Q1 didn't look like it usually did, but we knew that was going to be the case and so on and so forth. Q2, nary a mention of the House of Cards launch being delayed by a quarter in the shareholder letter. So just acted like this was the best Q2 ever for no particular reason other than that they're just doing really great. And so it was kind of funny in that sense. Um, but it was a big Q2 for them because uh, normally cyclically Q2 is a small one for them and it was big because of the extra signups they got. But strong growth, you know, stronger even than they had predicted, which is the impressive part. And, uh, you know, more of the same in that sense. Uh, it was interesting. They really, in the last couple of quarters, they've started spelling out more some of the cash implications of their original content strategy. Um, this quarter, they kind of spelled out a lot of that more too. Um, talked about being profitable for the full year internationally, which was kind of interesting. But a whole range of interesting stuff there. Aaron, what were your thoughts on all of that? Well, I, um, it, it actually got me thinking ahead a little bit, only because their subscriber growth is continuing to grow on a pretty good pace. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering what's next for them. Like there will come a saturation point and I don't think they're near it right now. So maybe it's just premature to worry about it, but I'm just curious what they do next as far as monetization goes, because they've basically have this flat subscriber, you know, strategy and there will, and obviously they did great in international growth. And so there are big open markets kind of waiting for them. But I'm just kind of curious how far that takes them and, you know, what the saturation point will be, um, like what will be the point at which people stop signing up or have already signed up for Netflix. Right. I don't know. I, I mean, it's I feel like it's really speculative right now to figure out where the line would be. I just think mm -hmm. it's a little too early, but it's got to be there somewhere, right? And Yeah. And, and yeah, for the company to continue growing, it's got to figure something else out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's I mean, that's where the international business comes in and this huge launch into what they call the rest of the world that they did back in January of last year. Right. Because if you look at the U.S. growth, that's slowed down very significantly over the last couple of years. So it still is growing. You know, they're adding, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers every quarter. So it's certainly not stopped growing. 
Um, but it's growing much less quickly than it was. They're having to spend more on marketing to get those new subscribers because you're in the long tail now, you're no longer in the kind of low, sorry to mix metaphors, but you're no longer going after the low hanging fruit. You're now going after the stuff that's harder to reach, having to drive it a bit harder and so on. And so in the US, the strategy is kind of shifting a little bit. And so this is where the sort of deepening content library and exclusives and things like that really come in because you need more of that stuff to attract the sort of uh, rest of the market that hasn't signed up yet in the first you know few years that they've been offering the service. Um, internationally, the growth has been accelerating because they've gone into all these new markets and they're doing a lot more localized content and that kind of thing. But this growth question that you mentioned is is a really important one. Uh, you know, people say, oh, they're spending all this money on content and look at the cash burn and this is unsustainable and so on. Well, it's perfectly sustainable as long as things keep going at the rate they are in terms right. of both subscriber growth and cost growth. Because right now, uh, revenues are two years ahead of the content costs. And as long as that continues to be the case, it's fine. You know, on a long-term basis, the cash burn and the P&L uh, profitability will come back into alignment again as they kind of move through this transition to original content. And it will be fine. But... The big assumption there is that revenue growth continues at the rate it's been going. Um, and to your point, in the U.S. is really slowing down. Internationally, it's still going gangbusters. But, you know, there's no hard evidence that the rest of the world has the same sort of eventual saturation level as the U.S. does, given that pay TV is far less prevalent in the rest of the world. You know, the, the offering is a lot less optimized for local markets in the rest of the world. You know, there could be a much lower ceiling, frankly, on growth in those individual countries. And with you know, 150 countries or whatever it is, they've got plenty of markets in which to reach that saturation and probably a lot of headroom still to go. But at some point, they do max out. And so the question is just, do they at some point reach an equilibrium where they can stop spending more on content every year and maybe have more of a steady state? Um, or, you know, do, are they forced into that situation by slowing revenue growth? You know, because at some point there, there has to be a ceiling on all of this unless, as you say, they expand into some new opportunity that they're not currently in. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past them to find other ways to monetize. I mean, the original content strategy was pretty novel and amazing. And when you look at what it's become, it's it's quite remarkable. They've, they just ended up, so USA Today on this reported that they ended up with 92 Emmy nominations. Mm -hmm. Only yeah. HBO had more nominations right. with 110. I mean, and yeah. this is a company that um, is was really brand new to this whole thing. And yeah. so you can't you can't sort of assume that Netflix is gonna gonna stagnate um, only because you know you could have said the same thing about their streaming business earlier um, mm -hmm. you know just streaming old old movies that other people have made right. um, so who knows but uh, but uh, yeah it will be I mean I don't think it's any time super close mm -hmm. but I don't know five years from yeah. now it'll be yeah. a much more compelling question. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm, I continue to be pretty bullish for the most part on Netflix, but that yeah. is the single biggest question, I think, for them longer term. All right. Well, let's move on to our second item. And this is the announcement that Lyft made on Friday. Um, and apparently they had a press event earlier in the week that was under some kind of an embargo uh, that lifted this morning as well. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> under which they are announcing a self-driving system. This is a bit odd because over the last few months, we've seen quite a few announcements from Lyft about this open self-driving platform. Uh, partnerships with companies from Waymo to GM to Newtonomy and others, Jaguar Land Rover. Uh, and the sense that they were giving was that they basically saw 
themselves as providing the ride-sharing piece and then offering that as a valuable asset to companies actually building the self-driving technology. So it comes as a bit of a surprise now suddenly to have them making an announcement saying that they're working on a self-driving system themselves, that 10% of their engineers are already working on this technology, they're opening a new facility that this team and an expanded version of that team is going to be in and so on. And so on a headline basis, it feels like, what? Hang on a second, this is a bit of a sort of a turnaround, a bit contradictory. Um, but in reading the blog post, and it was funny because I, I read through a lot of the press coverage and it just felt like, where is the detail here? You know. And then I read the blog post from Lyft and it's also very short on detail. Really, the only things that are mentioned specifically are uh, access to and integration with the ride-sharing data, which you know goes a lot further than just ride-share, but it goes in traffic patterns and utilization and various other things. Uh, but that's kind of already been part of that open self-driving platform that they've had. And then potentially putting some kinds of sensors and things onto Lyft drivers' cars to do some kind of 3D mapping over time. And that's really as far as the announcement goes today. So there's nothing about building their own LiDAR or other hardware for self-driving cars. Nothing really about, frankly, building software to actually steer cars around using all of that data. So my sense is that they're making a big deal about this, perhaps because they feel they have to be seen to be competing with Uber but in reality, there's not actually that much there. And I suspect a lot of the heavy lifting will be done by all those partners that they have. Um, and so it's less contradictory than perhaps it seems at first, but still kind of a bit surprising. And, and um, you know, it kind of goes to show that the companies in the space sort of seem to feel like they have to have a position in developing their own self-driving technology, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense, even though they're kind of coming to this so late, it's going to be really tough for them to be competitive. But they sort of feel the need to announce something anyway, even if it's actually fairly limited in practice. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't quite call it a gold rush mentality, but there's something like that in the self-driving space right now. I think a lot of companies just feel like, yeah, we could do that too. And they're, and they're entering in that mindset that, you know, in tech, there's a winner takes all or takes most dynamic. I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's Facebook, it's Microsoft on the desktop, you know, it's, it's a dichot, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a two winner stake in mobile with Android and iOS. I mean, there's this idea that there's a winner take us all, um, not, not an idea, it's a reality that there's a winner takes all, like nature to the tech industry. And I think there's a lot of thinking that it's going to be the same in self-driving, and I'm not sure that's true. Uh, and it's for a few reasons. One, there are a lot of individual components in any self-driving solution that would be interchangeable. And so one company might have an especially great LiDAR solution versus another. There will be a lot of competition in that space. Um, software um, is maybe the space where there's going to be a winner-takes-all approach, but it's going to be on the back of a host of different companies that are all competing. It's I, I, my suspicion is that this self-driving technology space is going to end up a lot like the other component spaces in the automobile industry, where there are some big players, none dominant, um, and uh, and and you actually have uh, you know a, a, like a couple hundred companies all participating in this total sort of solution. So for Lyft to enter into this space. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm not all that pessimistic about it because I just think they're going to have their little piece of it, right? And the trick is just making sure all this stuff operates together well. Um, but we've got that right now with brake pads and airbags. I don't see why it couldn't be the same for self-driving technology and the components that go into it. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, those are discrete components, whereas this stuff kind of has to be part. I mean, yes, they are parts of a system, but the system is itself sort of fairly standard when it comes to brake pads and things like that. So you wonder to what extent there will yeah. be sort of standardization on the self-driving right. technology as well, because it's very proprietary right now. Um, and so we don't yet know exactly how all this stuff's going to come together. Um, you know, ultimately, if if the self-driving portion is one system and then the, the sort of drive-by-wire system in the car is another system, all those things have to do is connect to each other. But if it's broken down into more fragments and pieces than that, then it starts to get a bit more complicated. So that's where, you know, I wonder kind of how this is going to come together other than as kind of a whole self-driving system connected to a whole sort of automotive system. And, um, yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch it. I, I just, I do... I do think, you know, I mean, Waymo, for example, clearly is now interested in just basically providing the driver, as it were, and not the car. You know, they're not right. building cars and, you know, they're providing the equivalent of the driver, but in uh, mechanical terms. And, um, you know, they're going to pair that with other people's cars. And so they have, you know, partner with partnership with Chrysler and, um, you know, with others as well. And, um, you know, Uber's got partnerships with Volvo and others and so on. So all these companies are partnering. And I think that is ultimately the way this is going to go. There's really no company that's going to be at the forefront of the three big transitions happening in the automotive industry right now, electrification, autonomy, and then mobility as a service. So each of these companies is going to have to specialize somewhat and then partner with companies that have expertise in these areas. And it feels like Lyft should really be very focused on ride sharing and the data they get and the systems that they have for uh, dispatching and, and all the rest and routing and, and that kind of stuff and then leave the actual self-driving technology to partners that have a lot more experience in that area have been working on it for, for years already and so on um, and I suspect that's where they're going to end up and so I feel like this announcement today is a bit of a distraction and a bit in some ways a bit of a smokescreen too perhaps in that they as I say feel they need to make an announcement in this area but perhaps there isn't actually all that much there. All right, well, let's move on to the third topic. And this was, uh, it kind of came out of the blue, but in some ways there have been sort of reports that something like this was going on for some time. And this was Google Glass, which, you know, is a product that was first announced as a potential consumer product a few years back and then eventually was released mostly as a sort of developer-focused product. And, and it did eventually go on public sale as well, uh, but never took off and, and faced huge obstacles right from the beginning as a consumer product, not least price and then the awkwardness of wearing sort of glasses with a camera attached to them very prominently out in public. And, you know, you had a, a very early and quick backlash from uh, businesses in places where these things were being worn, saying you can't wear this here and so on and so forth. And Google Glass has kind of faded. And I think a lot of people kind of assumed it had gone away, but there were these sort of persistent reports that something was still going on behind the scenes. And this week, Google kind of announced publicly what they've been doing for the last couple of years, which is working with lots of businesses to find uh, applications for Google Glass within those companies, mostly in sort of industrial environments so in factories and warehouses and that kind of thing. Um, and essentially, this started organically uh, with companies buying the sort of Explorer edition that was made available several years ago and saying, what could we do with this and sort of testing one or two units and then discovering, OK, this kind of works, but we need this to change and that to change. And so a lot of companies were making their own tweaks and customizations in hardware and software to try to make that work. And then Google eventually kind of picked up on this and started working more proactively with these companies to develop a, an enterprise-specific version. And so uh, that version's been sold to lots of companies already over the last couple of years, but it's now officially been announced as the Enterprise Edition. Uh, and, you know, well, I'll let you talk about this first, Aaron, because you kind of had a, a point that, you know, seemed like a good summary of kind of the, your reaction to the news. So why don't you go ahead and talk about this one first? 
Yeah, I, well, I just don't think it's obvious. And a lot of commentators and analysts have talked about this as though it's obvious that that augmented reality glasses are going to be a thing someday, that it's just kind of inevitable that they'll be a thing. And I'm not sure that's true. I, I guess I don't see it as totally clear. Um, I think a couple things need to happen. One, there has to there have to be better consumer applications of AR. I think our best hope of ever getting to those is going to be when Apple launches iOS 11 later this year and AR kit rolls out to the millions of millions of iPhones that are out there and developers get their hands on something that's actually in people's possession, which was never really the case with Google Glass. I think the second thing is that glasses, eyeglasses are totally a fashion item. Like for the people like me who wear glasses, just so we, I can see and not be blind everywhere I go, you know, the way they look on me matters a lot to me. And I think that was Google Glass's biggest um, like fumble was that right. uh, they were ridiculous looking. Mm-hmm. And uh, and glasses have to be personalizable and unique, and and they're a fashion item fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and they're going to and if if we have augmented reality glasses later, they'll have to be a fashion item. There's a glimmer of hope in that regard. If you look at what Apple's done with the watch, um, you know, even though the, the the actual black slab that sits on people's wrists, you know, looks the same absent, you know, maybe the the color change of the aluminum or steel it's made out of. Um, but, but I've seen more and more Apple watches worn with watch bands that are unique and different and everybody's kind of doing their own thing that way. So there's a glimmer of hope there that, that, you know, but glasses aren't like watches where you can have a, a standard core central thing and then just switch it out with bands. Um, you know, frames that are different shapes and sizes and they're all pretty unique. So that's the other hurdle that has to be overcome is the fashion issue, um, because I don't know. People want to feel different from everybody else. Nobody wants to be, you know. We don't. I, I just can't imagine a world where where everybody is wearing the exact same looking AR glasses. I just don't think right. that fits with humanity. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It seems like some sort of dystopian movie or yeah. something about no, the future right. where yeah, we all yeah. wear the same sort of uniforms all day, every day, and we're eating soil and green. There we so. go. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I was funny. I, I when I saw the announcement, I went back and sort of checked some of my notes from CES uh, in past years because I remembered a year when I'd seen a, a bunch of sort of industrial head-mounted displays, and uh, I, you know, digging through my notes, you know, it turned out it was 2014, and which was kind of the year after it was announced and, and sort of first became available to developers. And the notes that I wrote to myself then was, you know, this stuff feels like the proper application of stuff like Google Glass, not a consumer place. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter if it looks dorky if you're in a factory and it's part of what you wear for work. Um, you know, the privacy stuff doesn't matter. The expense doesn't matter because as long as it's providing enough of a benefit to a company, they'll be able to swallow the cost and still come out on top. You know, all the big objections to something like Glass in the consumer market basically go away in an enterprise or industrial environment. So it always seemed logical to me that that was where this would end up. I think one of the more interesting implications of that is what does this mean for HoloLens? Because Microsoft's big you know, product here is also very expensive. It's actually almost three times as much as Google Glass. Um, it's uh, you know, heavily uh, focused for today on things like training and that kind of thing, which again are very much sort of enterprise and industrial applications. And that's where it's actually selling today. Um, and so even though you know, Microsoft's trying to sell everybody on this vision of kind of holographic computing and all the rest of it with HoloLens as the big example today, it really feels like that isn't a mass market proposition at all. That's very much in the same 
uh, frame as Google Glass, and the application is going to be very much the same, and you know the justifications and all the rest of it will be the same. But it does raise questions to your point about AR glasses in general and whether those are going to be a mainstream thing. And if you go back to Facebook and their F8 developer conference this year, they talked up the prospects for AR glasses and contact lenses and that kind of thing, but they very firmly positioned that as sort of way down the line, sort of five to ten years out. And in the meantime, it's all about the smartphone. And then you look at WWDC and Apple talking about AR kit and all the rest of it, as you mentioned, and that's obviously smartphone-based as well. So I do think there's a role for AR glasses or contact lenses or whatever five to ten years down the line um, until they get to be very much like the glasses and things that we wear today, they're just not going to sell. Um, and so in the meantime, smartphone is absolutely going to be where the AR stuff happens. Um, and, uh, you know, that's going to be by far the biggest market between AR and VR. It's going to be the biggest chunk of that market by a long way. It's going to have hundreds of millions of users over the next year or two using smartphone AR with just tens of millions on any form of VR. Um, and so, you know, that really feels like where the action is. And in the meantime, we're going to see heads-up displays and, you know, mixed reality, whatever you want to call it, in these big, bulky headsets and Google Glass, like nerd glasses. Um, we're going to see those in the industrial and enterprise applications, but that's going to be about the limit, which means they're going to sell in very small numbers, but be very useful uh, to the companies that actually deploy them in, in clever ways. So it's an interesting sort of future for that category. But as I say, the Google Glass stuff is interesting, but seems kind of obvious the HoloLens is kind of the more interesting sort of implication of this. Like that feels like a much more limited market than the way Microsoft was first pitching it when they announced that device. Yeah, I agree. The one interesting thing, I guess, to mention is we haven't seen Magic Leap yet. People who've seen their demos say they're really spectacular and so on. I mean, I see that it seems to be an AR thing and that it does mix actual reality with virtual overlays and so on. So it's technically in that kind of AR headset category, but it feels very much like it's competing with VR headsets that are in the market today. So it certainly isn't going to be something that people are walking around wearing. It's going to be sort of a use case specific, I'm going to put this on and be in AR for a while. So I feel like that's another category that we haven't really seen yet in AR, but it's going to look a lot, I suspect, like some of the VR stuff that's out there today. I may be wrong about that. We'll see when they finally announce their product, hopefully later this year, but that yeah, feels like that it is. could muddy that. Yeah, it's supposedly later this year, but we'll see. But um, yeah, they, they uh, could potentially muddy that water a little bit and kind of provide something that sits in between some of the existing categories that are out there today. All right, well, let's move on to our fourth and last topic, which is Twitter and abuse and harassment on Twitter. Uh, two things that were in the news this week uh, about this. Firstly, uh, an article on BuzzFeed from Charlie Walsall, um, who's, you know, and BuzzFeed really has been the publication that's uh, arguably done the best job of reporting on abuse and harassment on Twitter. They've really done uh, lots of great pieces over the last couple of years, looking deeply into this, finding lots of real examples of people who've suffered from abuse and harassment and looked at how Twitter's handled those and so on. So, you know, latest bit of good reporting from them on this. Um, but they had a piece earlier in the week kind of saying, you know, Twitter still is doing a bad job of responding to reports of clear abuse and harassment that seem clearly in violation of its terms of service. Where people report stuff, Twitter sends back sort of a form letter saying we've looked into this and determined it doesn't constitute abuse and left the accounts and the offending tweets and so on up. And then when BuzzFeed or uh, some high profile Twitter user gets on the case and sort of says, hey, Twitter, what are you doing here? Then they sort of seem to review those and take them down after all. And so there's just this sense that Twitter's still not getting very good at applying its officially stated policies on abuse and harassment uh, consistently and effectively. 
um, even when it's reported to them. And then the second bit of news is, I think, partly in response to this, probably maybe it had been coming from a while and it was just timing. But then later in the week, Twitter talked to a bunch of reporters and put out a blog post sharing a bunch of data on how much better they've got at handling abuse and harassment over the past uh, really six months. Uh, it was in January when they started suddenly taking this very much more seriously and really did introduce a number of things that have made a difference. And the, the stats certainly indicate they've made a lot of progress in terms of shutting down accounts and so on. It's just there's still this inconsistency between all the progress that Twitter says it's making and this strange uh, poor response to actual abuse uh, reports and so on in, in cases which seem very clear-cut. Um, so it's just this funny contradiction where they are making progress, but there still seems to be a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I, The Verge had an interesting commentary on all that this week that, we'll, that we should link to because I think it was, it, was, it was a fair balance perspective on what Twitter has accomplished and what is still left to be accomplished. I think the, the biggest problem here is that Twitter's incentives, and we've talked about this concept before, are not lined up with banning users. I mean, um, until it comes to the point where people are truly abandoning Twitter because it has become a toxic environment, um, Twitter doesn't have, have the incentive of of blocking users, getting rid of users. The truth is, a lot of the a lot of the harassment is done publicly in a way that people that some people are enjoying, as as sad as that is, and and so. Um, yeah, it's just problematic because it's because the financial incentive for Twitter isn't crystallized enough for them to take it seriously the way they should, just on moral and ethical grounds. And it's a shame because um, the truth of it is, you know, they they are in a unique position of influence. They're they're not the ones harassing anybody, obviously, but they're sort of like Spider-Man in this scenario, right? With great power comes great responsibility, but but nobody at Twitter seems to be playing the Uncle Ben. <laughs> right to to get the company to to do what's right here, which is to be much more aggressive than they have been. Um, it sounds like they're finally moving in that direction, but uh, I think they still have a long way to go. And and it's not. I don't think we can take it for granted that it's all going to get fixed. Yeah, absolutely. No, agreed with that. It's uh, it's it continues to be a tricky issue, and uh, there is some evidence out there. There was a Pew. A research study that they did recently where they surveyed people about the harassment that they experienced online. It wasn't Twitter specific by any means, but it was about harassment online. And it really did indicate kind of the counterpoint to what you're saying about Twitter not having incentives, which is uh, that people who experience harassment uh, respond very negatively to that. And you know, a lot of people do end up leaving platforms where they experience harassment and so on. But they also said people who view harassment, so people who see it happening to other people, are also negatively affected by it and tend to use platforms less or stop using them entirely because of that. So it's one of those things where there are real impacts. And I think Twitter has always erred on the side of freedom of speech as they see it. Uh, rather than erring on the side of protecting users. And I think that balance has shifted a little over the last six months, and that's arguably, you know, in all the individual detailed things that they've actually done, I think that's been the biggest shift behind it. has been a slight uh, change in that sense of priorities there, but I still think they are somewhat too much erring on the side of, as they see it, freedom of speech. Um, and that means there are a lot of users, and it will be disproportionately women, um, especially higher-profile or outspoken women, people who speak about... Uh, controversial topics or things that shouldn't be controversial but to some people are uh, who get the bulk of that abuse and so it makes it a, an unpleasant place for them to be so um, you know they have clearly made progress and kudos to them for doing that but uh, at the same time uh, they still have work to do I think 
Uh, but we'll link to that Verge piece that Aaron mentioned because that sounds like it's good insight on the topic as well. Uh, well, that wraps up the four topics that we had for you today. So this is the end of our News Roundup episode. We did record a Question of the Week episode yesterday as well about Apple's health and fitness uh, strategy, uh, sort of a deep dive on that topic based on some briefings that I had last week. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, uh, you go and dig that out in your podcast app and listen to that next. Um, but that concludes our episodes for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great weekend. And we should be back with you with a couple of new episodes next week. Bye-bye.